Did you know that Australia had a commission for the future? In part, Australia's commission for the future sought to examine key trends in the uh, culture's youth and offer constructive plans for a brighter future. To that end, the Commission for the Future published a series of lengthy essays in the hopes of making some impact in the culture, in the present culture, that might bear some fruit kind of 25 years down the line, 25 years later. For the Commission, Richard Eckersley wrote this, quote, Robbed of a broader meaning to our lives, we appear to have entered an era of mass obsession, usually with ourselves, our appearance, our health and fitness, our work, our sex lives, our children's performance, our personal development. It's important to understand that at the time of his writing, Richard Eckersley was non-religious. Uh, from all that I can tell, that remains true. So in today's verbiage, he would uh, be part of the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated. And after lamenting the loss of a broader meaning to life and a self-obsession, listen to what Eckersley went on to write. Quote, Young Australians, and I think we could just as easily suggest young Americans, young Australians are fast trackers. Something new is always happening. They're always accustomed to rapid change. There's a strong sense of urgency about the need to have fun and to have it now. Their appetite for newness appears to be insatiable. They are materialistic and indulged generation. They express a very strong need for a sense of security. The picture that emerges is of a youth culture that is barely holding together certainly not enduring, a mass media culture marked by frenetic fashions and polarization between self-destructive recklessness and abandon and a more insidiously debilitating cautiousness, social withdrawal, and self-centeredness. It may be, then, the greatest wrong, this is interesting, the greatest wrong we are doing to our children is not the broken families or the scarcity of jobs, damaging though these are, but the creation of a culture that gives them nothing greater than themselves to believe in. No God, no king, no country. The problem seems to be self-absorption, or to use Eckersley's words, mass obsession, usually with ourselves. That sounds so much like today, doesn't it? Uh, iPod, iPad, iPhone, Anyone want to guess the year of Eckersley's writing? 2007? Good guess. 1992. It was 1992. It would be difficult to argue that the concerns raised with respect to Australia's society in 1992 are all that different than the concerns we face today here in our situation. Self-centeredness has been a human problem since the very first human when Adam disobeyed God's good command in the garden, he placed himself at the center of the world. Everyone born of Adam has done the same. What then is the antidote to humanity's problem of self-centeredness? It's God-centeredness. And the psalm that we're looking at together this morning invites us to look away from ourselves and to look to God. It calls us not to praise ourselves, but to praise the one who made us, to praise the God who made all of creation, who even now reigns over all of creation, and who will bring his creation to its glorious consummation. Each of us could stand to think of ourselves just a little less and to think about God just a little bit more. 
And Psalm 150 will help us to do that now. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 150. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find that on page 526. 526. We've reached our final psalm in this uh, scattered series of psalms that began back in November. And with it, we've come to the last psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 150. The psalms, as you may know, are a collection of 150 praises, prayers, poems, and proclamations and songs of the ancient people of God. As a whole, the psalms teach us, or teach the people of Israel, uh, that they were prayerfully and patiently waiting for God's anointed king to come and inaugurate his kingdom. The psalms began with God blessing man, and as we'll see, this psalm, the psalms conclude with mankind called to bless God. To put it canonically, to put it in the words uh, of the whole Bible's theology in view from Genesis to Revelation, the Psalms began with God blessing the man who not only delighted in but did God's law. The one who perfectly fulfilled that first Psalm and all of the Psalms is Jesus. He delighted in and did God's law. He is and was the messianic king of Psalm 2. Jesus was and is God's blessed and beloved Son. And those who take refuge in Him are blessed. And because Jesus lived and loved the length and breadth of the Psalms, we may be those who bless God using the words of this final Psalm. It is only because of Jesus that we can praise the Lord. We can praise Him in His sanctuary and in His mighty heavens. It's only because of Jesus that we can praise Him for His mighty deeds and according to His excellent greatness. It's only because of Jesus that we can praise Him with anything that we can put our hands on and everything that we are. It is only because of Jesus that we can praise God with everything that is within us. So let's read this glorious psalm now. Read Psalm 150. Praise the Lord, or literally, Hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That's right. Good. This psalm is clearly and constantly about praising the Lord. It's about praising the Lord from top to bottom, from beginning to end. Yahweh's praise is commanded at the beginning. You see it there in verse 1 and at the end, verse 6. In fact, Yahweh's praise is commanded 11 times in between the top and the tail. In, in total, we are commanded to praise the Lord 13 times. And what should our response be after reading the Psalter? Uh, it should be Psalm 150, to praise the Lord. We don't praise God because we finished reading a really long book, but because of who this book has revealed our God to be, a God worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love, as we confessed this morning. In this Psalm, we are told where we should praise God, why we should praise God, how we should praise God, and who should praise God. And those four points, they're going to form the outline of the rest of this sermon. So first, where should we praise God? 
That's our first point. Where should we praise God? Read Psalm 150 verse 1 again. Hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. In the initial opening command is a simple and accurate translation of hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Yah is often just short for Yahweh. Wherever you come across that, as Dennis pointed out this morning, the capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh right there in the scriptures. And sometimes I'll, I'll read that word as uh, Lord Yahweh, just to remind us of that truth. Praise the Lord. This is an intriguing way to begin a psalm, isn't it? It's an imperative. It's a command. It's just something we are to obey and do. In the middle school, Sunday school class, uh, we're working our way through the, the Baptist Catechism of 1813. And in that catechism, we have only just begun to study the Ten Commandments. And time and time again, we've come back to this question, does God have the right to issue commands to us? Does God have that right? And the answer we've given time and time again, because the scriptures give the answer time and time again, is that as the author of creation, God has the authority to exercise his right to rule and reign, to give commands. Since he's the author, he has the authority to give commands. The author of creation exercises authority for his glory, but also for our good. This command to praise Yahweh, to praise the Lord, not only brings him glory, but it is also our best and highest good. When we give praise to God, we are living in accordance with our divine design. We were made to praise, not ourselves, but the Lord. So, what gets your praise? If you aren't sure, well, what gets my praise? Ask yourself, what, what gets your attention? What gets my attention? When you, when you wake up in the morning, you reach for your phone, your Bible, on social media, are you highlighting yourself? Are you highlighting God? We would even say the same thing about our common conversations, right? Are we drawing attention back to ourselves? Are we... Are we giving it to God? Um, what are your thoughts drawn to when you fall asleep? Your glory or, or God's glory? I mean, these are revealing questions. Important things to puzzle over. We might not feel obsessed with ourselves, but maybe we ought to take a second look. We were made to praise, not ourselves or the creation, but the Creator. And as we give ourselves to obeying this command, we, we give ourselves to living in the groove of our divine design, God's design for us, in the groove and the grain of that. And as we disobey this command to praise God, to praise, so we disobey this command, and we give ourselves praise or we praise the creation, we, we cut against the groove and the grain of God's design for us. This command is far from your harm. God gives it for your happiness. But what does it mean to praise Yahweh? What does it mean to hallelujah? Well, to praise the Lord means to ascribe to God His worth and weightiness. If God has a kind of gravitas in our world, and He does, then He should have it in our lives and it should be on our lips. Just as gravity keeps us all grounded, so God's existence, which is the most fundamental reality in all of the universe, God's existence, should keep pulling us back to Him. We live in reference to and in reverence to Him. There's nothing we do out of relation to Him. He is always involved because He's omnipresent. We speak in reference to and in reverence of Him. He hears our every word. 
Our audience is never less than one, never less than the one true God. When we think, we think in reference to Him, and all of our thoughts should reverence Him. Our, our thinking ought to fall in line with His righteous law and holy will. We ought to think God's thoughts after Him. He knows us and our minds better than we know them. He made us, and so we should praise Him with our minds. When we feel, we feel in reference to and in reverence of Him. In other words, all of our feelings ought to match and mirror His feelings. He's angry at injustice, and we ought to be angry at injustice. He is compassionate toward the weak and the oppressed, the poor and the needy, and so we ought to be compassionate toward the weak, the oppressed, the poor, and the needy. As He delights when a sinner is saved by grace, so we ought to delight when a sinner is saved by grace. Our God is honored. He is praised and revealed to be worthy and weighty when our lives on earth display His heart and His character in heaven. This command to praise God is far from your harm. It is for your happiness. But enough about you and me. Where is God to be praised? We're told that God is to be praised in two places. Do you see it there? In His sanctuary and in His mighty heavens. And this is just a poetic way of saying that God is to be praised everywhere. God is to be praised in His sanctuary. And here the author of the psalm is referring to God's earthly dwelling place. The place where God's people gathered in order to give Him praise. In the Old Testament era, God's sanctuary was the tabernacle and then later the temple. Today, in the era of the New Covenant, we know that the tabernacle and temple were but types and shadows of the reality that was to come in Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that in the person of Jesus, God tabernacled among us. One chapter later, in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus declares himself to be the temple of God. The locus and location of where God's people worship is Jesus. And as the pages of the New Testament keep turning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, we learn that all those who have been united to Jesus in faith are the temple of the living God. Christians are now God's temple. And further still, the, the corporate church is depicted as the temple of the living God in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So, so here's where our God through Psalm 150, verse 1, and Jesus Christ looks us square in the eye and He says to us as New Covenant believers, you are my sanctuary. You are my temple. You are my place of worship. You are where I should be praised. So render your praise. Have you surrendered and rendered your praise to God? We are to praise God on earth, but He's also to be praised, we see there, in His mighty heavens. Uh, perhaps the more literal rendering would be praise Him in the firmament of His strength. And if those words sound familiar to you, then you're likely remembering what's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 7, where the firmament is described uh, like a dome that holds up the heavenly waters. This certainly does speak to God's power and strength, His might. And some have suggested that this call here to praise Him in His mighty heavens is a, is a call to the angelic beings or the heavenly hosts there to praise the Lord. That's possible. However, the call to praise seems directed toward those who are on earth. This is where we need to remember that we're, we're reading poetry. We need to think about what these two lines, praise God in His sanctuary and praise Him in His mighty heavens, are saying together. 
in the words of the Genevan reformer, the psalmist's most likely intention for worshipers is to bid them lift their eyes toward the heavenly sanctuary. You see, our earthly worship has a heavenly goal. Worship on earth has always actually strained toward heaven. While the uh, people of ancient Israel worshiped God in the temple on Mount Sion, uh, they also knew that one day there would be a heavenly Mount Sion, a new Jerusalem. The, the prophet Micah in chapter 4 verses 2 through 5 spoke of it and promised it would be so. Uh, the same is true for Isaiah in the final two chapters of his book. The worship of God's people on earth ought to be straining toward what it will be in heaven. Glory divine. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. We've been told where to praise God. Everywhere. And now we turn to consider why we should praise God. This is our second point. Why we should praise God. Take a look there at verse 2 of Psalm 150. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Why should we praise God? Well, verse 2 gives us two simple answers. Praise God for His conduct and praise God for His character. Praise God for His conduct. We see that in the line. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise God for His character. We see that in the line. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Let's unpack each. And I want to be completely honest about what I'm trying to accomplish in this point. I want to give you reasons to praise God. That's what I'm trying to do here. I want to give you reasons to praise God. I want you to walk away with a number of things for which we ought to praise God. And here's why this is important. Psalm 150 commands you to praise God. Right? Specifically, it commands you to praise God for who He is and what He has done. And if you don't know who He is or what He has done, then you're going to have difficulty obeying the command of Psalm 150 to praise God. You're going to have difficulty praising Him. And so as we work through these two reasons to praise God, His conduct and His character, we're going to be doing some theology. We're always doing theology, but we're going to be doing a kind of theology that traces God's great works through redemptive history. And as we unpack God's conduct, that's what we're doing. We're tracing God's great work through redemptive history. And as we unpack God's character, we're going to be doing some systematic theology, collecting what the Scriptures say on God's various attributes. And if you find yourself unsure of what to draw out of your daily Bible reading, this might be a good thing to try at home. You don't hear that often. Kids, try this at home, right? As you read your Bible on your own, ask yourself what you learn about God and His conduct, what He has done or what He is doing. Ask yourself what you learn about God's character, who He is. We should praise God for His conduct and character. So let's practice that theology now. Verse 2 in our psalm tells us that we should praise God for His conduct. We should praise God for His conduct. That is what He has done, His mighty deeds. And notice how these deeds are described. These are not described as ordinary, but as extraordinary. They are mighty. They're full of strength and power. These mighty deeds typically refer to God's extraordinary works in creation and redemption. What mighty deeds might the ancient people of God praise Him for? What deeds should we praise God for? Where, where might we begin? Well, how about the beginning? That's a good place to start. How, how can God's act of speaking, speaking the universe into existence, be described in terms other than mighty and powerful? I mean, when was the last time you spoke something into existence? Pop-tart. Nope. 
You don't do that. You don't have that power. This is the extraordinary power of God. He can speak the world, the creation, the universe into existence. And He ought to be praised for His power. The amazing creation that we know and see each and every day. What about the flood of God's judgment on the world? That was mighty too. And what about, what about imparting life into barren Sarah's womb through old Abraham in order to keep his promises of a Redeemer alive? Or we could praise God for his mighty deeds in the plagues on Egypt in Israel's exodus. We could praise God for his mighty and miraculous provision and preservation of his people in the wilderness for 40 years. Their sandals didn't wear out. How is that possible? He fed them from heaven. He protected them from enemies. We could praise God for his conquest of Canaan through Joshua. If you go back and read the book of Joshua, you will be amazed by how often it recounts God's victory. Not to mention how the Lord of the universe made the sun stand still. We could and should praise God for protecting the Messianic line through bringing Ruth out of Moab and into marriage with Boaz. We could praise God for keeping His promises alive through the tumultuous period of the kings. They were terrible men so often. And He protected and preserved His line. Even their sin could not stop the Savior from coming. We could praise God for not abandoning His promises during the grueling period of the exile when the hope of His people seemed dead. He was keeping the hope of the Messiah alive. And perhaps most of all, eliminate perhaps, most of all, we should praise God for His mighty deeds in Jesus Christ. Should we not be left in awe and wonder at the incarnation of the eternal God? It's barely comprehensible that the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth would take on flesh. How is it that the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable would take on flesh? How is it that the second person of the triune Godhead, who in His being is full of wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, would enter into this sin-sick world to save sinners like us? Those who've rebelled against Him and actually deserve His judgment and wrath, He came to save. The infinite in an infant, as one believer said. We should praise God for the incarnation. And we should praise God for the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never shied away from the sinful, the sick, the sullied, and the shameful souls he met. He healed lepers. He ended paralysis. He fed thousands. He calmed storms. He walked on water. He raised the dead. His life was one mighty deed after another. He kept the law. Is that not a mighty deed? No one else had done it before. And no one else has done it since. He lived a life of personal, perfect, and perpetual righteousness unto God the Father. He was sinless. And then, in His mighty mercy, He took the sins of His people upon His shoulders... They weren't his sins. They were our sins. He bore the weight and the wrath, the guilt and the punishment for those sins on the cross. He hung in darkness and desolation and he died. He was buried in the heart of the earth. And then, and then, on the third day, something unexpected happened. 
God the Father brought his beloved son back to life. In the words of one poet, he took one breath and put death to death. Praise God. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is surely a mighty deed of our great God. A mighty deed for which we should never cease to give him praise. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you ought to turn from your sin and believe on Jesus. Give him your praise. He died to save sinners like you and me. As your maker and Lord, as the author of your life, he commands you and summons you now to give him your praise with everything that you are and have. So come to him in repentance and faith. Bow down and worship him and praise your maker as you were designed to do. Our Lord Jesus, the God-man, sometime after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And from there, he generously poured out his Holy Spirit. Pentecost is another mighty deed of our God. Because of the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit, we can be born again and united to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Every single conversion of every single believer is a mighty deed of God. Christian, you, you are a living miracle. You are a living mighty deed of God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Jesus Christ. There is a testimony to the mighty deeds of of our God sitting right next to you probably. All around us, there are mighty deeds of God in this room, and we ought to praise Him for it. Another one of God's amazing and mighty deeds is also occurring right now. The letter to the Hebrews tells us that even now, Jesus is upholding the world by the word of His power. His powerful word not only creates and saves, but it also sustains. Paul in Colossians tells us that in Jesus Christ, all things are holding together. That the atoms of this world are not splitting at their seams right now is a testimony to the mighty deeds and power of our God. Christian, do you realize that God has granted you a spiritual resurrection from the dead? And one day, He will grant you a physical resurrection from the dead, just like Jesus. So now we await with eager expectation for the last of God's mighty deeds. Now we wait for the return of our Savior and King. And on the day of His return, He will raise and renew the bodies of His saints. And He will restore the whole created order to a glory greater than at the beginning. On that day, there will be no more deterioration, no more debilitating sickness, no more disease, no more death, no more decay. You can praise Him for those mighty deeds today because they are certain. They are sure. He is a faithful God and He will do what He promised. And this reminds us of the second reason we ought to give God praise. Why should we praise God? We should praise God for His sublime, His supreme, His sovereign character. That's what the psalmist means when he says His excellent greatness. Do you know the God we worship? Do you know who He is in His person? Do you know the attributes of His character? Systematic theologians speak of the attributes of God typically in, in two, um, two categories of attributes. God's incommunicable attributes 
and God's communicable attributes. God's incommunicable attributes are those attributes that belong to God alone. An obvious incommunicable attribute of God is that He is self-existent. He has no cause or source. As we know from the very first verse of the Bible, God is and was from before time began. That's not true of us. We have been made. We are dependent. We have a source. But our God is uncreated. We are not like that. We've all been created. We're all dependent. But God is self-existent, uncreated, and independent. To use the words of Romans chapter 11, verse 36, God is not from anything. He's not through anything. He's not to anything. Quite the opposite, Paul says. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And what does Paul say after that? To Him be glory. In other words, Paul praises God for His incommunicable attributes to some degree. There are a a whole host of incommunicable attributes for which we might praise God. We can think of His unity, His oneness and simplicity. He is unique. There's there's no one like Him. Our God is immutable. He does not change His being. We change all the time. But our God changes not. And this is for our good. So we read in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. See, praise God for His immutability. Because from it stems our preservation. Our God is self-existent. He's simple. He's immutable. He's also omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Our God is omnipresent in that He's not limited to any physical location or space. He's present everywhere. This is what the psalmist admits in Psalm 139, verse 7. We read there, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? The implication, of course, is there's no place. There's no place on earth where we can escape God. Those who trust Him and know this are not afraid by His omnipresence. In fact, it's a great comfort to us that our God is everywhere. We rejoice that everywhere we go, He is there. We can praise God for His omniscience. He knows Himself and His creation and all things fully. There is nothing that He does not know. God knows what is past and present And future, as one believer said, God knows all of time, all the time, at every point in time. We can praise and trust our God, for He knows us. He knows our frame. He knows our future. It's not uncertain or in doubt. He knows and He cares, and so He should receive our praise. And we should praise God for His omnipotence. He is all-powerful. In the words of a lovable children's song that I won't sing to you now, is there anyone who can ever do anything that he wants to do? The answer, yes, God can. God can do all his holy will. So we need never worry or to fear. God has control of all things far and near. What a comfort to us that God can do all his holy will. And God will do all His holy will, because God is all-powerful. Our power is limited, but God's power is unlimited. And this would be a worry for us if it were not for the fact that our God is also perfectly good. God always uses His unlimited power for ultimate good, and His people are the blessed recipients of that good. And so we should praise Him. These 
these attributes, independence, simplicity, immutability, omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence are but some of God's incommunicable attributes. Those attributes that He alone possesses. There's a book on the book nook, if you're interested, uh, called None Like Him. If you want to read more about some of God's incommunicable attributes. But God also has communicable attributes that are, are worthy of His praise. God's communicable attributes are those attributes that God communicates to us. Uh, attributes that God predicates to us. Though we only bear these attributes analogically. Uh, in, in other words, we bear and display these attributes of God truly, but in a far lesser degree in our lives. Um, God's communicable attributes typically make themselves known in God's actions in His creation and toward His creatures. So uh, a list of God's communicable attributes could consist of His goodness, love, mercy, grace, holiness, righteousness, veracity, wisdom, and wrath. Our God is good. He is he's perfectly good. He's the measure and meaning of all that could be considered good. And it is not therefore surprising that when He creates, His creation is constantly and consistently described as good. And so Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, For everything created by God is good. God's goodness is not only seen in creation, but it's also seen in redemption. So in Psalm 25, verse 7, we read, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. The psalmist tells us that God's goodness and love, they go hand in hand. God is love, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. And one chapter before that, John said, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. As we live and move and have our being in this world, we can display something of God's goodness and love. We know this most potently in our human relationships. Our God is also worthy of praise for His mercy. God's mercy is His compassionate disposition toward His people. God's mercy, He's merciful in that He does not give us what our sins deserve. God reveals to us that He is merciful in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. There we read, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There we heard that our God is not only merciful, but that He's also gracious. You know, we sometimes throw the word grace around a lot in our Christian conversations. But what is grace? Well, where mercy is not giving us what we deserve, grace is giving us what we do not deserve. You could think of mercy as withholding punishment, and grace is giving blessing. In other words, God's grace is God's unmerited favor toward undeserving sinners. You can, you should, praise God for His grace and for His mercy. When God revealed Himself to Moses as a God who sees and knows 
and deals with iniquity, we are learning that He is a holy and righteous God. So in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the heavenly host, the seraphim, declare that God is not just holy, but as we sang this morning, He is holy, holy, holy. And their repetition tells us that they meant to emphasize this attribute of God. We often need to push the, the, the words that we are singing through our minds. Not just through our mouths, but also through our minds. If they are audibly, if the seraphim are audibly underlining, italicizing, and, and bolding this attribute of God for us, then we ought to think carefully about it. God's holiness is an essential attribute of His character and being. He cannot be God without being the holy God. And the word holy means set apart. It has an ethical dimension to it. God is completely set apart from sickness, for, sorry, from, from sin and wickedness and evil. Sin is not in His person, and it cannot even be in His presence. God is holy in all that He is and holy in all that He does. God is holy in thought and in word and in deed. And we reflect on God's holiness when we think about who He is. We come to see that there's no one like Him. But perhaps now you think, now wait a minute, I thought this was a communicable attribute of God, something that we shared with Him. And yes, we do share this with Him. But we reflect His holy character in a far lesser degree and only by grace. Our God has called His people to be holy. You see that in Leviticus 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 44, and in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. But we can only be holy by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as we can only be righteous by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we are set apart and sanctified as holy. We could continue to unpack the character of our God to great benefit and profit, but at some point, we actually need to get busy praising. So the only question is, how? Well, we've learned that we're to praise God everywhere. We've learned that we're to praise God for His conduct and His character. But just exactly how do we go about praising God? Well, that's the next point we turn to consider. How should we praise God? And to answer that question, take a look at verses 3 to 5 there. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. How should we praise God? Well, simply put, we should praise Him with anything that we can put our hands on, with our whole being, with our whole lives. That's the idea here. The trumpet was often used to call a great assembly, to announce a feast, to announce a new moon, a new year, the year of Jubilee. While at one level, the use of the trumpet is a call to public worship, what we seem to be given here is a picture uh, more like a joyful procession after a mighty victory of God. The instruments enumerated here are small and medium and large. We have uh, wind instruments involved, stringed instruments involved, percussion instruments involved, symbols of different sizes involved. And notice it's the loud symbols that are the, the glorious climax. We're moving to a loud crashing of praise. It's as if the psalmist named every kind of instrument used during that era and he brings his enumeration to a crescendo with a loud clashing cymbals. The, the poetry itself is kind of pushing us toward this loud expression of praise and joy, a joyful clash 
of the symbols. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the picture here is likely one of a, a victorious procession. And the clue to that is probably in the tambourine and the dancing. Um, look, I know we're in a Baptist church and all, but there's dancing in the Bible. So we just have to deal with it. Um, we're not looking at like couples dancing that we're often uh, prone to thinking of, or even line dancing. Uh, this is a Southern Baptist church after all. Uh, we're, we're not thinking of that kind of dancing, but rather a joyful dancing like that of David leaping before the ark of God as it was brought into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. So what we're, we're getting here is not so much a, a prescription of what we're to do in our public worship, so much as a description of the kind of exuberant praise that the people of God are to bring to Him, that they're to give. And insofar as I can tell from the Scriptures, the, the worship assemblies of God's people in both the Old and the New Testament uh, don't include dancing. Uh, there was dancing after great military battles, like when Miriam danced uh, after the Exodus in Exodus 15. I think tambourines are present there. There was dancing after David defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel 18. Uh, but we just don't see dancing in tabernacle or temple worship. We don't see dancing in the early church. Look, if you want to cut a rug, I'm probably not going to stop you. I think I might know a guy who, who might, but I'm, I'm probably not going to stop you. It's probably not going to be me. Whatever the case may be, uh, re remember that we've gathered here to worship our holy, righteous, infinite, and eternal God. So our attention needs to be on Him, not on you no matter how good you are at dancing. Want to dance? Well, just don't detract or distract from God. Remember the opening and closing of Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God is our audience, the one we ought to receive, one who, one who ought to receive all of our attention in worship. Now, may we use these instruments in our public worship? Yes, I think we may. We may use any instrument under the sun in public worship. Which instruments we use and how we use them will require wisdom. We're commanded, for example, to sing in the Scriptures. We have to obey the Scriptures. So, so Paul writes in, in Colossians that we ought to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So if the symbols are going crazy, it's probably going to be difficult to sing. So we need wisdom to, in thinking through which instruments we use and how we use them in corporate worship. We want to make sure to, to use instruments in such a way that they don't shut down what we're commanded to do, which is to sing. Um, the, the New Testament prizes and prioritizes the singing of the people of God in worship. So that's what we should endeavor to do in our public worship. Currently, uh, you will know that we use a piano and a guitar. We could use more instruments. We have used more instruments in our public worship. We've used a cello and a violin, and we'd certainly be happy to use them again. But we could also use other instruments to aid our singing. So if you're a member of, of Arlington Baptist Church, you, you play an instrument, you want to participate, help support the singing of God's people, come and talk to the elders, talk to those uh, who help us lead our music up here. See who those who are serving and speak to them about how you might be able to help serve the people of God in song. As I said, uh, the kind of praise that's in view here is less kind of a, a public worship service that would be in the temple or tabernacle and more a public procession. Uh, this tells us something of how we ought to live our lives before the watching world. Brothers and sisters, we are marching home in victory. We are marching home in victory to glory. We are exiles making our way 
to the promised land of heaven. And our lives should be full of joyful praise to our God. We ought to live lives of exuberant praise. These verses are filled with excitement and punctuation marks precisely because we ought to be happy about who our God is and what He's done for us. This is what we're headed to in glory. It's how the whole Bible ends. It ends with a joyful procession of God's people bringing praise and glory to our great God and King. You should read about that later this afternoon at the end of Revelation uh, 21. That would be a blessing, I trust. The psalmist is not telling us so much what instruments uh, to use in worship as he's telling us how our worship ought to be characterized with, with joy, with eagerness, with exuberance, with delight in our God. <coughs> We've learned where we should praise Yahweh everywhere, why we should praise God for His conduct and His character, how we should praise God with everything and with exuberance, and in the last verse, we're finally told who should praise God. And as we consider our final point, who should praise God, take a look at Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord Yahweh. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah. Here, in the close of the song, and the close of the Psalter, we are appropriately told who should praise God. And the answer is not in doubt. Everyone and everything should praise God. That means Gentiles should praise God too. All of creation, all creatures of our God and King should bring praise to Yahweh. And, and here's the truth in the end. Everything will culminate in praise. For example, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We get a similar picture in the book of Revelation. In John's vision of the end, particularly in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, John first sees a vision of living creatures and the elders falling down and worshiping Jesus, singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then, just a few verses later, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, we read this, And I heard every creature, here it is again, Revelation 5.13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The praise of our God is the end of this psalm. It's also the end and goal of our lives. It's the end and goal of the whole created order. It's as if the Psalter, as a whole, has been working toward this goal. Beginning with the promise of a man who will delight in and keep God's law and declaring him king, this Psalm and the Psalter ends with God having kept his promises through all of the difficulty and the low points in the Psalms. He's kept his promises. He's brought them through. He's, his king has been raised and he's reigning. 
This psalm and psalter end with God having kept his promises to bring his king so that all is left for his people to do is to praise him. It's striking, is it not, that the psalter does not end with meditation or contemplation. It ends with a call to action. It ends with a call to praise. In fact, it ends with an incessant call to praise, right? Thirteen times praise is commanded. It's as if the one who organized the Psalter is saying to us, look, after you've finished this book, there's only one thing left to do. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And as you consider the conclusion of this psalm and the Psalter, you only need to ask yourself one question, and it's this. Do you have breath? Do you have breath? Are you breathing? Then what does God require of you? What does God command you to do? He commands you to turn away from your self-indulgence and self-absorption and sin. And He commands you to turn Him in praise for all that He has done in Jesus Christ. To praise Him everywhere He leads you on this earth. He commands you to praise Him for His great works in creation and redemption. He commands you to praise Him for His glorious, gracious, and good character. He commands you to praise Him with eagerness and with exuberance. And He commands you to praise Him because He's still giving you life and breath. You were made for His praise. You were given this breath to praise Him. So praise the Lord. Let's pray together.